people envision cities of the future, they inevitably come up with images of towering glass structures glinting in the sun, crisscrossed by flying vehicles gliding effortlessly through the sky. But is that really what a smart city will look like? Well, it's unlikely to say the least. Hello everyone, I'm David Altsbev, Director of Data and Demonstrators at the Connected Places Catapult, the new name for the combined transport systems and future cities catapults. And in this podcast series from Fujitsu, I'll be taking you on a journey into the future of urban mobility. We'll be asking what the transport networks and ecosystems of the future might look like, considering what it'll mean to be a smart passenger, and finally, working out how we're going to make this future a reality. In this episode, we'll explore what our urban environments will look like in the future. We'll discuss the role transport will play in shaping city services for the people who inhabit them, and consider how to make them accessible from everyone, from workers to students, families and tourists. Ready? Well, I'm lucky today to be joined by a panel of experts from across the tech and transport sectors, and I'll hand over to each of them now to introduce themselves. I'm Rikesh Shah, I'm the Head of Commercial Innovation at Transport for London. Hi, I'm Paul Campion, I'm the CEO of the Transport Systems Catapult, one of the two catapults that, as David mentioned, is going to come together to form the Connected Places Catapult. Uh, We focus on helping companies to grow by innovating in the area of transport. Hi, I'm Lauren Carmody. I'm a business consultant for Fujitsu, currently working with one of our clients, which is High Speed Rail 2. Hello, I'm Kim Smith. I'm the head of mobility at Digital Greenwich, and we're an organisation wholly owned by the Royal Borough of Greenwich, set up specifically to address the smart city agenda. Lovely, a great range of expertise at present at the table here. So, I suppose the best place to start this discussion is by giving a bit of shape to what we mean when we talk about smart cities and the urban spaces of the future. So, can I start with you, Rakesh? What does that mean for TfL in the context of London? Yeah, I think smart cities has lots of different interpretations. So, in London, under the Mayor's Chief Digital Officer, we've recently, or in the last 12 months, introduced a Smart London Plan. And I think, for me, the focus needs to be about how can emerging technology and data help solve some of the challenges that we have for our city and looking ahead into the next 15 to 20 years. So that could be in areas of transport, housing, the environment or or security. It's it's about thinking about, rather than thinking about the technology and the data, it's, it's about thinking about the outcomes that supports the goals that we're trying to achieve to make London, in my case, a better place. So some of the things that we're looking at as part of the Smart London Plan are five key themes. One is around better collaboration between public partners, but also with private bodies too. And that's around common approaches and and common standards. And one area of focus there is looking at data. You know, there's lots of different data standards, data formats, so that means that data can't talk to each other. So as a result, you can't come up with the right innovative outcomes that you may want. There's also a piece around better connectivity. So more people are connected, we need to make sure that as data is passing through, whether it's verbal or whether it's visual, it, and it allows uh, connectivity is, is good across the city, whether you're above ground or below ground. Then it's also about better digital skills and leadership. It's quite clear that we need to start engaging right from a very young age through the academic syllabus of thinking about digital leaders of the future. And we have the right skill set to support the goals that we, we, we need to achieve in the next few years. And finally, there's a piece around better citizen engagement. 
How can technology help us engage with citizens to help achieve the outcomes that's right for the citizen and the city? So it's about putting the citizen at the heart of decision making. And Kim, as working within a borough in London as part of the wider Greater London, how does that chime with your experiences and your viewpoints? Um, it chimes very well. Basically, Digital Greenwich and DG Cities, by extension, was set up by the Royal Borough of Greenwich in, in 2015. And what kicked it off was a nervousness, if you like, in the borough about the change from the manufacturing base for the economy, which Greenwich primarily was, um, to a much more digital con- economy and what the impact would be for the, the residents of the borough with that happening. Pretty soon it became evident that it wasn't just about the economy and about the workforce. It was urbanisation, the ageing population, the increasing population, climate change, technological innovation and generally politicians' inability to keep up with the policy to manage disruptive technologies and the increasing sources of big data and how we could actually apply that and use that for the benefit of the community rather than simply stack up masses of information that nobody knew what they were doing with. So although my role within DG Cities is is primarily mobility, we're, we're not an organisation that is solely mobility. We, we obviously look at at connectivity as the thing that's underpinning an awful lot of change. Um, It's not my area, so I won't go into a lot of detail about that. But it's the the changes in the population and the changes of what the population want. So we're moving from an area where where it's um, ownership to usership, moving from mobility to accessibility. And so most of the projects that we're working in are actually looking to address that. And while I say, you know, we're technologically agnostic, with a lot of the stuff we do. The partners that we have in various consortium aren't. We've, we work with a lot of expert groups in, in different areas. But what our role within that is, is to try and ground it in bringing back the technology for the benefit of the residents and actually trying to put that spin on the smart mobility agenda. If I might go now to you, Paul, how does that fit with the wider transport systems catapult view of the mobility sector and how you guys engage? Well, I wouldn't disagree with anything that's been said, uh, but if I zoom back just a little um, to the wider transport network, which is entirely relevant to cities, of course, because uh, you know, everything that gets consumed or produced in cities has to come in and out of them, uh, fundamentally a transport problem. Um, I, I think we could see this in a historical perspective. Uh, Thomas Hughes, in his in his book Networks of Power talked about the way that the electricity distribution industry rolled out over a period of time. So the first central electricity generating station was opened in 1880 by Thomas Edison. Probably wasn't until after the Second World War that you could say the transformation of the economy of citizens' lives was really complete. And I think we're in a similar transition phase in transport. A time traveller from 100 years ago would pretty much recognise the transport networks of today. There's a few more cars that are a bit shinier, but basically you've got cars, buses, trains, planes and boats, and they operate in very similar ways. I came to the studio today by train and they gave me a paper ticket. So I think we are going to see transport transformed in ways that other industries, retail or finance or publishing, uh, music, have been transformed. And that is the opportunity. 
So as a smart city, thinking about the challenge and the, the opportunity of moving all the staff in and out of the city, uh, how can we use the transformational wave of technologies to transform the lives of our citizens, to make our city, cities more pleasant, greener, better places to be, reduce our uh, environmental impact, grow the economy. Uh, you know, this, this, this sounds like um, heaven. Uh, I, I think it could be, but the technology is equally consistent with a dystopia as a utopia. So, it, you know, the interesting thing about this problem is how do we use this stuff? How do we guide this transformation to get the outcomes we want? And it's a very important point. Technology is just a means. We need to work out what the ends are that we want. And going over to you, Lauren, now with HS2, that segues quite nicely. Obviously, everything comes in cities from different areas around the world. How does, well, HS2 is just a train. How's the digital technology behind all of that going to change the experience of how people use that to transportation? Well, it's I guess from a HS2 point of view, it's going to link the cities, you know, a lot more closely together and make it that people living in the north, people living in the south, you know, open up these kind of workplaces that they potentially haven't thought about before. But I think going kind of back to the smart cities point of view as well, um, for me, you know, in my day-to-day -day role as well, it's my job to kind of look at it from the user and the individual's point of view. So for me, this might, you know, we can talk about smart cities and I echo what's said around the room around you know, it, for me, it's around the true ease of movement and making kind of every individual's life easier. And from a technology point of view, it should kind of be around, as an individual, it shouldn't change my life. You know, the technology shouldn't kind of impact me. The technology should be sat there to support what I do on a day-to-day -day and just make that easier rather than it kind of being this new change for me as an individual living in a city. But yeah, I think from a HS2 point of view, it is just more connecting the cities that we have. Um, you know, and it making it easier to move between them. Fantastic. And I think your point there about it shouldn't really change, um, make much change for the users to support them and what they're doing. Before we go in a bit more into a deeper dive on technology and data, what is it the citizens are asking for from their transport network that we are currently not delivering? And I want to sort of say this because I want to, what is it that the citizens actually want? We've seen a lot of transport mobility solutions being tested and trialed around cities around the world over the last few years. Some have worked, some have failed, some have had unintended consequences. And it feels like almost we're chucking technology at a problem and we've perhaps not actually asked the citizens, what do you want from mobility? And then we'll develop the solution. I think that's a, a very, very valid point. The primary response we get when we ask people about what they want is journey time reliability um, and actually ease of transfer. A, a classic dystopian vision is a ticketing system for the National Rail Service in the UK. You cannot buy a single ticket for a journey that you might want to do, or if you do, there are umpteen different price ranges for that ticket, depending if you buy it on a Thursday when there's a full moon or not. Um, to, to have a, a system where you have a reliable service, a reliable set of information about that service, and a known ticketing price for that service is something I think people want. Um, mobility as a service, we start to move towards that. You have you have a system that, that links you from home to your final, final destination in one seamless ticketing option. To some extent, we've got that already in London with Oyster, although as other services come in and layer on top of, of the TFL network, then that again causes a level of confusion. So so for me, it's, it's clarity of the, the options 
the timing of those options and the pricing of those options. Very nicely put. Paul, you had some points you wanted to make. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of thoughts going off in my mind uh, here. I'm tempted to repeat the thing that Henry Ford almost certainly didn't say, uh, which is if you ask what people want, they say a faster horse. And my view is that what people want from transport is it for just to go away. Transport is a derived demand. No one, first order of magnitude approximation anyway, no one travels because they want to travel. They travel because they want to go and see their mum or go to the cinema or take the kids to school or go shopping or get to work. And, uh, you know, I um, often ask what's the future of mobility. The answer is Downton Abbey. If you watch Downton Abbey, Lord Crawley sits there, uh, you know, in one shot he's sitting there in his, his armchair with a glass of whiskey saying, you know what, Carson, I think we'll go to London next week. And the very next shot, they're unpacking boxes in Eaton Square. Well, my life isn't like that and neither is yours. Right? When you decide you want to go somewhere, you've got to have a good working knowledge of all the various modal options. You've got to fight the ticketing system. You've got to synchronise uh, timetables. If something goes wrong, it's on your shoulders. It's a nightmare. And we've done a fantastic job of democratising transport in the 20th century. Now it's time to democratise convenience. I want a butler. I want, I want the whole thing just to go away and I want to achieve the things I want to achieve without having to think about transport. And that's the utopia I want. I love that question about, well, that phrase, democratise convenience. And I'm going to put that to you, Rakesh. Um, TFL, waste system, fantastic. It simplified the whole system. Now we've had a whole new range of mobility options come on. I've got a plethora of apps, cards, and various things on my phone and wallet to enable me to move around the city, and it's getting a little bit confusing. How does TfL go about democratising convenience? Yeah, I mean, just before I answer that, just coming back to the customer point, I mean, we spend a lot of time engaging with our customers in London. So there's 30 million trips every day made in London. And it's a big shift. We don't call them passengers, and that's an important shift. They are called customers. So we are aiming to provide a service that resonates with the customer and it's something that the customer wants. And of course, the customer essentially wants to get from A to B as safely and securely as possible. And it's, it's not, except visitors, who were well, ch- slightly challenged Paul's, Paul's point, which is visitors do love enjoying using our network as an experience. Most people are using it as a service just, just to get through. But, but the, the point being that you know, we're listening to customer feedback and saying actually what services do you want to provide? So in our case, getting information at your fingertips is essential. Trying to keep disruption at a minimum is, 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 is essential. And it's hard, you know, to do a live metro upgrade isn't straightforward. It's quite unique in the world. Um, answering your other question um, around new services being developed, I think the first point is what new services are being developed? And let's look at, we look at it from the lens of the Mayor's Transport Strategy. So if a new dockless bike service is entering London, we need to think about all the benefits to Londoners. Actually, are there safety hazards? Uh, we've found bikes in the past that have been parked on the Transport for London road network where you've got cars driving at 40, 50 miles an hour and you've got a bike parked next to it. There's some of the things that we need to think about. So as new modes of transport enter London, we need to engage with them very early and we need to assess what impact it can have in London and then we make a decision from a policy point of view. And then we assess how do we market that product. Fantastic. And for Lauren, I guess for HS2, a little bit harder. You don't have a predefined customer base no one's really 
spend a lot of time on high-speed rail in the UK. So how do you go about designing a mobility service for a new customer base? Yeah, so I guess I guess it feeds into what Kim was saying. You know, a lot of that is in there, but also it's around kind of cutting them journey times for people. So yes, you're right, not many of us want to travel, but if we do have to travel, get me from A to B in the shortest time possible. Um, I guess a benefit to HS2 is they're not working on the old infrastructure that... Transport for London, Network Rail are. We know that's a huge challenge in this country. Um, but, you know, there's, there's. I can't speak for all, all of HSU, but there's, you know, there's key things coming from that that, you know, we need from transport anyway, and hopefully that type of thing will provide them. But, yeah, it's just, again, from my personal point of view as a user, um, you know, it is around getting from A to B as easily as possible in the best comfort. So, you know, not stood up, being sat somewhere where I can actually do something with that time. Um, and if it does go wrong, you know, the system kind of allows that to happen in the smoothest way. And it's not, as you said, and on my shoulders to do something about that. Could I just add one, one other point on that? It's mm-hmm. also customers, just built on Kim's earlier point, customers' needs are changing, mm. right? 14% of Londoners have an accessibility need. So as a result, we need to design a transport service that's a transport service for all. Yeah, just coming in on that again, um, we know in Greenwich, our biggest growing part of the population is the over 65s. In the next 10 years, they'll, they'll grow by 44%. The next biggest segment is the under 15s. So both of those who are groups that could potentially have different transport needs to your, your normal driver, your normal you know person with no mobility access problems. Um, so what we're thinking a lot about is actually how we link those people into into the community and also coming back to Paul's point do we always need to travel I probably have 50% of my meetings virtually now um, as as connectivity gets better as the digital age gets gets more acceptable then that becomes more and more of a possibility yeah that's a very good point Kim you want to yeah, well, just come back on that point. You, th- that's an incredibly important point you're making. And um, we also ought to uh, be asking ourselves, who needs to travel? So we haven't mentioned freight yet. Uh, clearly an important part of the load on the infrastructure and pretty fundamental to keeping us fed and watered, uh, uh, to say the least. But let's take uh, you know, older or less able people. Uh, we shouldn't necessarily assume the answer is for them to travel to services or to uh, uh, to goods. That the goods increasingly will and services can travel to them, and there may be much more efficient ways to operate the network if we if we think in those terms. Uh, now, it's much more than food and water, clearly, and we need to find ways to enable people to pay a part in the social uh, life of their district and region um, uh, as well as just the commercial life. But, uh, you know, most of those over 65s will have uh, at least some mobility. So really rethinking our placemaking, rethinking how we structure our environment uh, with the new possibilities that technology may provide us in mind, I think can, can lead us to some better answers than we currently see. Yeah, and connectivity keeps popping up in all of your responses here, both digital connectivity and physical connectivity. How is this connectivity going to affect passengers' experiences? How might it alter their perception of transportation and mobility? And I say that derived demand needing to go somewhere versus actually, can that demand come to me? 
Well, I think there's a, there's a really uh, a couple of very interesting fundamental points here. Uh, Rory Sutherland, uh, who's the vice chair of Ogilvy and quite an entertaining speaker on this, um, contrasts the amount of money that's spent on HS1 uh, to, in his words, in, you know, reduce the journey time by 20 minutes uh, with the amount of money it would have taken to provide good access to Wi-Fi on that which wouldn't have changed the speed, but it would have meant you could make use of the time you spent. I think it's a really important point. And, you know, this goes right back to to government. So HS2 is often in the news for all the wrong reasons. Lots of people say, well, you know, it's ridiculous to spend that amount of money to get to Birmingham uh, faster. I don't even want to go to Birmingham, they say. Um, and that is to confuse why we do things with how we do things. And the Treasury Green Book, which you know creates the cost-benefit ratios that enable people to sign checks, require is basically based on time savings. Um, and so we we had to have a spreadsheet that generated a positive number in the bottom right-hand corner to be able to write the check. That's not why we did it. Why we did it is because we need more capacity on the west coast. And I, I think again the, the the point you're making on connectivity. Let's rethink our possibilities about what journeys are needed. And then what we can do with those journeys. One final point, the Royal College of Art, uh, perhaps not the people that, that, that first spring to mind um, here, have a course in vehicle design and they're increasingly focused on future types of vehicles. And they challenge their students to think about how can you spend the time in an autonomous vehicle. And getting those people to, to, to you know, to, to, at the very beginning of their careers, you know, young people, uh, to put their creativity in, in, in how could those journeys be different from the perspective of the traveller, um, create some fascinating, provocative, and sometimes marginally embarrassing answers. Just sort of jumping on the back of what Paul was saying there um, about RCA, they were one of our partners in the Gateway Project, which was the, the first AV project in London, really. It was a, a three-year project looking not at the technology of autonomous vehicles, but people's perception, understanding and acceptance of autonomous vehicles. And I'm paraphrasing here, I can't remember the exact title of their, their, their document, but it was something like CAV, Utopia or Dystopia. Um, it's available on the Gateway website and it, it's worth a read. It's, uh, there's some quite interesting ideas of what the students thought future connected autonomous vehicles could look like. Um, Gateway was, was an interesting project because it actually looked at a shuttle service. It looked at um, a logistics pod delivery service and the, the one that, that I found actually exceptionally interesting but got very little press was a valet parking so it was effectively people being able to get out at the venue the car went away and did whatever it did they came out pressed a button got in the car and and went back to wherever now for for people who are mobility impaired um a couple of the people who we we interviewed using that were were blind it was the first time they'd been able to take an independent journey in a vehicle um, some very interesting work came out of that one. Yeah, so I think I'll probably look at connectivity from two or three perspectives. Uh, firstly, it's from the citizen perspective, which is if I'm connected, how does it make my life better? Do I get information about my services on time? Do I know which location I'm going to? So does it help me wayfind my way around London? I then also look at it from a operations perspective. So as technology is emerging, more and more of our systems are interconnected. So we can provide integrated information both internally and externally to our customers. And thirdly, there's a piece around outside of transport, we've then got other verticals too. 
How do we start connecting information between the health sector, the transport sector and beyond to again put the citizen at the heart of the decision making? We've talked a lot about connectivity and data here, but we're facing a next wave of technological revolution. Artificial uh, intelligence, AR, VR, blockchain, automation, all these technologies are on the horizon. They're all exploring what the potential use cases are and where they could be applied. How might these technologies play out in the mobility sector and what impact might they have on user experiences, but also on the cities where they're being applied? So I can give you a live case study that we're working on right now. So we've just launched an initiative called London Road Lab. So this is to reduce the adverse impact of roadworks in, in the capital. And what we found in the past is lots of great innovations are coming through. And we've and other public, public bodies have struggled to adopt or use these innovations, whether it's procurement, whether it's the internal culture. So what we've tried to do is set an outcome-based challenge. And we're using a pioneering new EU procurement process which allows us to work with some of these startups. And, and, and what, what we're trying to do, we're doing this with the utilities and London councils. And the, the, in, the key point here is we're being outcome led. So we're setting the outcomes that we're looking for and we're letting the market to come up with the solutions. Quite often, we can be quite prescriptive with what we want. So as a result, I just saw some of the solutions yesterday. We've had a wide range of solutions. And going back to Kim's earlier point, I'm tech agnostic. Does it give us the outcomes that we want? So I've seen solutions there that probably I don't understand the technology, but it's certainly got data, it's got AI, it's got VR. And the challenge now is how do we scale that solution so it starts solving some of London's problems? And I think that's a much better way of doing it. Paul, Transport Systems Catapult is pretty much in the business of helping the market scale. How Absolutely. And, 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 you know, you mentioned a sort of... Uh, smorgasbord or a dog's dinner of, uh, of technologies there. There's all sorts of stuff going to happen. But I'm completely Rakesh here. I, I, at some level or other, I don't care. I mean, I do, but I don't. Because what matters is not how we do it, it's what we do. And the, um, I think the danger of talking about those technologies is that we all get excited by the gizmos. And everyone, oh, I like gizmo as much as the next person. But the, uh, what we don't have enough of is the debate and uh, around a vision of what sort of city do we want to be and whenever i'm with a city and they say well what you know what what could we aspire to be like i say well you know what about copenhagen you know have you considered being copenhagen there's one answer uh copenhagen where the vast majorities of journeys are walk cycle or public transport and they say, oh, well, yeah, yeah but, but it's cold. Hang on, they're 55 degrees north. I was in Glasgow yesterday, same latitude. And uh, so that's not, the, that's not the challenge. Oh, yeah, but I got hills, all right, e-bikes. Now, what's actually missing? Political will. And Copenhagen did what they did and became what they have become by a sustained act of political will over multiple decades. Now, that's really hard to do, I recognise. But... If we don't have a vision of what better is, then we can't even begin Indeed. to try. Exactly. Yeah. I think that point about what kind of society do we want to enable through this technology is absolutely paramount. Could, could I just build on Paul's point? Um, so in London, it's, it's great that we've got a mayor's transport strategy that's taken us forward 25 years. So in London, our, our goals are very clear. We want 80% of trips to be the walking, cycling or public transit or public transport. 
and, and and that sets out a clear clear goal. We've also got a very clear focus on road collisions and deaths. We want no deaths on London's roads. And similarly, we want uh, to focus on a zero carbon city. So we've got some very clear goals for innovators to aim for, and hopefully the technology can help us realise that. Yep. And Kim, over to you as a kind of member of one of the London boroughs within that sphere. What's the kind of vision for Greenwich? You've talked a lot about the variety of different users and the changing mobility needs of them as they as time progresses. What's the overall vision in the future for yeah, Greenwich? I'm, I'm just going to touch on the, the TfL side of it first, because prior to DG, I was the head of transport and strategy for Greenwich Council for 14 years, so I've got quite a good background <laughs> in that area Please as do. well. <laughs> <laughs> the latest Mayor's Transport Strategy, Vision Zero for 2040, zero, zero, or zero killed, Great. Um, I'd like to say Greenwich is way ahead of the curve on getting there already. Um, the same with you, Les. It's a very brave move. But I would say it still doesn't go far enough. When you actually look at the the smart and connected agenda in that strategy, it simply says we will keep abreast. It doesn't actually set out a vision and it doesn't set anything hard and fast in there. And I think although Sadiq's been incredibly brave with some of the stuff he's come out with, it still doesn't go far enough. And... When we look at at um, the latest code of practice on autonomous vehicles that came out last month from the, the government, it's still not clear. It's still not leading the way in the way it needs to. Politicians need to grasp this. They need to understand. They need to be much more forward-thinking and forward-looking on this in order to, to manage it. If we don't, we end up with the type of disruption we've had with... Um, drones recently is a, is a great example where the regulation wasn't in place to manage drones or if you if you like then unregulated services of uh, private hire vehicles or less regulated services of private hire vehicles where we one of the studies we did was on autonomous vehicle ride share it was a simulation and it, it basically looked at the place that would have in London in 2025 and it was very very clear that unless that was actually part of the overall transport office offer unless it actually fed into the transit system then it would be extracting from the public transport system as it is it needs to be layered onto it it needs to be part of that system so i, th I think for me it's it's ensuring we have the policy in place to manage it and also ensuring we don't look at these things in silos it's got to be a holistic approach so i, I couldn't agree more with what you've said and the the, the, the point you raise about uh, autonomous vehicles potentially cannibalizing public transport is really important our modelling, by the way, suggests that uh, for the foreseeable future, autonomous vehicles dramatically increase congestion. And, and essentially what we're talking about, therefore, is private convenience being bought at the cost of public waste. So, but the waste gets dumped onto the public realm. So, uh, you know, I know, I know we probably want to get back to technology, but, uh, you know, I think these, these uh, questions are pretty fundamental to how we deploy the technology. And to come back to your point about Sadiq's bravery, you know, um, interesting word to use. I, I, I think we've all got a responsibility to help to help furnish different stories around here. You know, per, for one, I am fed up with cycling being sold as a health benefit, right? We are at peak Lycra. I'm bored of it. Everyone's bored of it. Anybody who's interested in their health enough to get on a bicycle did so long ago. And, uh, and we have to find a different story. The point about cycling is it's it, let's take Copenhagen again, right? Why does everyone cycle in Copenhagen? Is it because they're healthier than we are in Leeds or London? No, it's because it's the cheapest, easiest, most convenient way to get to work. And we've got to articulate a political story around cycling, which is about, which is about challenging transport poverty. 
I and every time someone says, "Oh, I want another road because you know the 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 I don't know." Take a, let's take a neutral example, the Black Cat Roundabout. You know, we should spend a billion pounds on the Black Cat Roundabout. Well, probably we should, okay, but that is privileging people who can already afford a car. And there are parts of London where, and most of UK cities, where actually there are too many people who, who don't need to worry about congestion on the roads because they can't afford a car. How do we enable them to get the benefits of mobility? So these these political stories that we tell need to be informed by those of us who know what the technological choices are, and we mustn't be tempted in allowing them to run away with the latest gizmo. touched on two very important points there. One is around the political leadership, the other is around inclusivity and accessibility for all citizens, regardless of income, age, gender, whatever. We've been a bit London-centric, obviously we've got two people representing here from London, we are in London. London is massively benefited by having TfL here. The Manchesters, the Glasgows, the Prestons, the Leicesters, they don't have that kind of transportation body. How can the political leadership there have the same vision and clout and impact to guide the right systems in their cities? So it's too hard. Can you ask us an easier question? <laughs> <laughs> it's complex. Um, I mean, L- London's interesting because we have TfL as the umbrella organisation, the, the, the regional, yep. and the boroughs are also the transport authorities for, for, for their areas, but they don't manage the public transport system. But they are responsible for, in, in Greenwich, um, TfL manages 5% of the network, the borough manages the rest of it. So, you know, they, 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 they have a say in that. In, in other um, cities, metropolitan areas, which are primarily the growth areas, um, then, then you have, in some cases, a mayor, and in some cases, like Manchester, like Sheffield, like Edinburgh, you can actually see quite a lot of benefits coming in to those those areas. Quite a lot of public transport benefits coming in. Um, in in the, the the smaller, more rural areas and and smaller cities, then it's complex because there isn't the funding. There isn't the funding, and there isn't the opportunity. And with the bus system running the way it does by competitive tender, then it's it's very difficult to layer on benefit often. Yeah, just, just uh, if I was going to say what which Kim just said, which is I think by having new mayors across seven or eight regions now, what it does enable is a more integrated view to transport in that region, which clearly can create lots of benefits. Well, that's that's clearly true, and and we can look at what's you know Andy Street's doing in um, Birmingham, the West Midlands. We can look at what's going on in Manchester, um, and we can see the stirrings of a of a more strategic vision there. Um, there are, of course, other other ways in which this can be tackled. As I was in Scotland earlier this week, um, the Scottish government, the devolved administrations, have the opportunity maybe to to step up to this. Uh, The Oxford, Cambridge, Milton Keynes arc or growth corridor or whatever it's called this week uh, uh, is another opportunity there for perhaps people to come together to build their own vision. But my experience in talking to all those people, um, all of them committed, skilled uh, people, none of what I say should be interpreted criticism, any of them, I have huge respect for them, but they're, they're very often short of the language, the stories, the vision, and they have a lot of people talking to them about technology and kit and tackle and bits and pieces, but their go-to solutions are the solutions that we've been using for 100 years. And we're, and 
we're in danger of building a better yesterday instead of really creating a tomorrow that takes uh, uh, an opportunity uh, uh, you know of what's there unless we unless we in the smart cities the technology community help to speak their language help to help them to articulate stories ways of thinking about the options that enable them to sell it yeah i mean absolutely right you know if if we're not careful then we do go backwards we go backwards very quickly but you know what we are looking at is a paradigm shift we have to be looking at the urban mobility versus urban accessibility in the city it's why are we traveling why do we need to travel if we need to travel let's do it the most optimal way we possibly can but for me what underpins all of this again is connectivity and not just mobility i mean connectivity having an option other than traveling and unless we actually get the funding to develop that and and you you talk about copenhagen i don't have have the detail but i'm fairly sure that their 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 basic bandwidth is a lot wider than it is in london we're not going to be able to run cav in the uk unless we have the underlying connectivity I, I, sorted i i don't think that's necessarily correct i mean i i'm not i'm not going to defend the thing you know a lot of people say what about 5g that's all coming hang on you know there's plenty of places i go where there's no g you know so so uh not spots i uh, Mm. and the the level of provision i think is more important than what's the highest level you can get but anyway leave leave that aside uh uh, maybe um for a second i I, there's a whole thought here around the way that we that we reach out to people and connect people which, which are on and, and by the way just in parentheses we're talking a lot about cities here but the market is much more likely to help us solve the city's problems than the rural problems so we're not going to talk about it much here but you know but let, let, let's remember if i'm in you know i'm in a, a rural area or actually just a less well populated lower center right my, my, i've got the same problems but i'm going to get an awful lot less help from the money to do it but but there is a ton of money here to solve the problems. We need to be really careful in a view of innovation, which is something added on top of everything else I do. And we've touched on it a couple of times here already, but you know, money comes down to cities from central government yep. in pots. And if I'm, well, it doesn't matter who I am, if I'm the mayor of a medium-sized city and I want to do something, and then someone's going to give me at some point a million pounds to fix potholes because that's the current political thing. And if I want to spend that on anything other than potholes, I cannot. And if I want to spend, you know, 100 grand from my health budget on transport because I can reduce, I can increase life expectancy better by spending it on transport instead of on bandages, I cannot. And... Even more, basically, the, the rail industry's just got, what, 35 billion quid in the last um, uh, budget. The, uh, the RIS settlement was uh, 40 billion, am I right? 30 billion, 30, 40, quite a big number. Anyway, I'll be honest, more than I earn. Uh, and, and, yet, and yet we, talk, we say that we haven't got any money. The truth is we've got tons and tons and tons of money, but we've got to think about innovation as how do we do things differently? Not, I've got to, I'm going to do all my projects I currently got, and then I've got to do innovation on top, so someone's going to give me extra money. That's all wrong. As, as a, a, a pseudo-representative of local authority, I would say saying we've got tons of money would probably not go down terribly well. There is tons of money, but the tons of money is siloed. That's my point. Uh, yeah. That's my point. So unless we can actually deal with that, then we're not going to move forward that well. And, and the, the, the problem we have with that, it's short, short-term political 
decision making. It always is. So, so, so I think just coming back to the question about other cities, other regions, actually, we, we learn quite a lot from some of the other regions, you know, when it comes to innovating and, and deploying new technologies to make Londoners' lives better. So transport for West Midlands and transport for Greater Manchester. Actually, we've had quite a few takeaways. And I think, I guess the, uh, there's a recommendation from me here where sometimes being in the innovation space with my counterparts in the other regions, we feel a bit removed when we're doing innovation. And I think we could join up a bit more. And potentially with the catapults here, you know, how do we as the innovation leads in our transport agencies, get together, work with you, and really drive innovation or stimulate the market for more innovation together. Fantastic. Could yeah. you just sign here, please? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an opportunity. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I think also there is an opportunity for some of the smart city visions that we were talking about at the beginning to actually be agreed across cities as well. So as you can probably see from my accent, I am from Durham. You know, I am from Durham, Newcastle. If you talk to an individual about smart cities there... I imagine I may be doing them an injustice that it's kind of a bit of what does that mean to me? And I think as a country, not just as cities, we need to get some of that kind of what we're trying to achieve from it out there and communicate well, it as so well. I, I was actually in Newcastle two weeks ago having precisely this discussion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, huge respect for these people, but they, mm. but they are, they're trapped in these silos that can be yeah. talked about, they're trapped in the, the way that they've always done things. And we are at a transformational moment and transformation Management buzzword, right? We use it without really thinking. What it means is everything changes. Mm. Well, the people who are in authority got there by being really good at what they do, right? They aren't, therefore, by training and preparation, necessarily, they don't feel able to move into a different way of doing things. Again, I think that's a responsibility on us. We're at a stage where everything in mobility is essentially up for grabs. So how do we ensure that these smart city solutions, however we might phrase them to the average person on the street, maintain that customer or end-user centricity? And how can we ensure that accessibility, diversity and inclusion is built into these technology solutions from the outset so they remain relevant to the people of Durham, to the people of Newcastle? So I think just building on the previous points and, and this question around money, sometimes to enhance customer experiences, you don't need to spend a lot of money too. And an example I'll give you answering this one is TfL's approach to open data. So... We've released our data, and that was quite straightforward to do. It does get complex after a while, but we've started to release the data that will help support the outcomes that we want. So on accessibility, we're highlighting data which, which uh, demonstrates step-free access. Around transport, it tells you where your nearest bus is. Now, what we've seen is over 700 apps developed for the customer, niche apps in many cases, that makes their life better. We've also got 15,000 developers accessing our open data and helping to solve some of the transport problems that we we might have, whether it's academia or or whether there's others. So the point here is you can can drive lots of innovation with a customer at the centre, but you need to provide some of those tools that stimulates the innovation. And in our case, I think the role of data has has played a big big part. Certainly um, our role in a lot of the projects we work in is, is actually talking to to the user base to the customer to the residents of Greenwich and and asking what their perception is what they want what they feel from this merge Greenwich which I mentioned which was the one-year AV um, rideshare 
simulation is now funded as a three-year autonomous vehicle rideshare pilot which goes live as from the 1st of March actually where we'll be putting 15 vehicles 15 AVs on the the roads in Greenwich with a user base of approximately 200 people so what our role in that is is actually seeing how those vehicles and that service helps those lives and feeding that back into the research for this program I think uh that's absolutely right. And it's really, it's really exciting to hear authorities, uh, transport operators talking about in this way about the need to innovate. Um, I could pick up on something you uh, were talking about earlier, Rakesh, because we're doing something similar. In fact, if you don't mind me saying, I think we're just very slightly ahead of you on um, <laughs> helping network rail to in, in imaginative ways yeah. of procurement. Yeah. Uh, because the supply chain which you might think are the people who are eagerly pushing these yeah. new opportunities, yeah. something, yeah. actually get trained yeah. Yeah. to always deliver the same thing by public procurement processes, but also the culture and habits of what is still, well, quite rightly, a conservative industry. Safety is very, very important, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, to take the rail industry as an example, right, probably that safest rail industry in the world, over 11 years since someone died on a British railway because of a rail accident, one of the reasons it, it's so safe is because it never changes. And so, you, you know, you've got to balance the business as usual, get stuff done with the need to innovate. And we need to find ways to help the supply chain to bring those ideas. Actually, one of the reasons, one of the meetings I had in Glasgow, I'm going to mention it again, was with a large bus company and a large transport operator to help them to understand how they could develop new products that could enable new services that could create new possibilities. And you know, they're not in the habit of doing that. They haven't done that for 20, 30, 50, 100 years. And neither they need are, to be helped. Sorry, neither are they in the habit of talking to their customer base. And I think that's something that actually needs to be brought into all these discussions much more clearly. And I think that's a great point to end on, the need to really engage with our customers and our citizens of the city to understand what they need from their mobility services to enable the supply chain to come forward and develop those new solutions. Our journey continues in episode two, when I'll be joined by more experts to dig deeper into the role that smart urban transport might play in our cities in the future. We'll assess the opportunities in this for transport companies and cities authorities and startups, and examine the impact this might have on urban economies. We'll be asking how smart urban environments will incorporate mobility as a service solution, and look at what all of this means for transport end users, the citizens, and the city visitors themselves. So a huge thanks to all of our guests for their time and insights today. Like I said, we'll be back in episode two where we're exploring how to go about building these new mobility ecosystems.